Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Tom Hartman here with you. We've got a lot to cover on today's program, a really big program today. Peter Aldous is going to be talking with us about some just startling new information that came out of Texas about what happened when the power grid shut down, when the cold, the Arctic air came down. On the line with us is the science reporter for BuzzFeed News, buzzfeed.com, of course. Peter Aldous, his own website, Peter Aldous, A-L-D-H-O-U-S.com. And his uh, Twitter handle, P-A-L-D-H-O-U-S, or at BuzzFeed as well. Peter, welcome to the program. You have done a deep dive into what happened in Texas after this god-awful storm that seems to you know, be uh, climate change on steroids, you know, spilling Arctic air all the way down to Texas, took out the power grid down there. You want to tell us about it? Yeah, glad to be with you. Yeah, we what I did is with my colleagues is do what's called an excess deaths analysis. So we were looking at the official count coming out from the state of Texas, which last time I looked stood at 151 and thinking that that number was likely not accurate. We can go into why it was likely an undercount if you'd like. But what we decided to do was look at CDC data on deaths, which they maintain, look at how many you would expect in any given week, which is a, a thing you can do statistically, and then look at the difference in individual weeks, both in Texas and we looked at the surrounding states as well, which experienced much of the same weather but didn't experience those prolonged power outages. And what uh, transpired from this after we'd also accounted for COVID deaths as well and taken those out of the picture was a very pronounced spike in deaths above what's expected in Texas in the week following the storm and during the power outages. So that's the week ending February the 20th. Our best estimate is that 702 people died that wouldn't have died likely if the storm and power outages hadn't have happened. There's some uncertainty around that because this is a statistical method, but even the lower end of our range, which was 426, is almost three times 
the state's official count. And and that, that we think is pretty important. Like if we're going to prevent stuff like this happening before and harden Texas's infrastructure, particularly in energy, so that this doesn't happen, you need to know the full toll, which is what we were trying to do with our reporting here. Yeah, I totally get that. You open the article with the story of a woman whose husband died during the power outage there down there in Texas, you know, and he had a few medical conditions, but she's convinced he died of hypothermia or he died of the medical conditions being triggered by his not being able to stay warm. I think it was a heart attack, as I recall. And yet his death was not recorded as having anything to do with the storm. It had, you know, just, oh, yeah, this guy had coronary artery disease. So, you know, it was that was there any politics involved in that? I mean, there, there is some considerable evidence that in Florida, for example, Ron DeSantis was rigging COVID numbers back in the last, you know, April, May, June, July of last year. And, and perhaps through the, maybe he still is. I don't know. And, you know, he had one of his uh, state statisticians call him out on it. He fired her. Then he sent the police in to raid her house and take her computer. And I don't think we've seen any resolution to that. Is this an example of the same kind of thing happening in Texas, where a Republican administration is basically trying to provide cover? In this case, not for you know a president who let a virus go nuts, but for a, a state power system, you know that is privately owned and that frankly also owns many of the politicians in the state. Well. Those are complicated questions. I, yes. I won't get into it here, but the Florida situation is probably more complicated than that as well. Mm -hmm. But in Texas, I don't think that's exactly what's going on. I think we've got what we've got here is the Department of State Health Services is trying to do this count, but they're doing it by the traditional means of doing that, which is gathering data from individual counties for what their medical examiner, in the case of most of the counties of Texas, don't have a medical examiner. They have a justice of the peace sign off on cause of death. Now, that's a system that is gonna lead, particularly with deaths that may be triggered by cold, which could be hypothermia, but could just be an exacerbation of existing disease. But that doesn't mean they weren't killed indirectly by the storm and power outages. It's gonna to lead to a lot of those deaths being attributed to their underlying medical conditions. Right. And absolutely, our analysis suggests that most of these people were already medically vulnerable and that their prior conditions likely contributed to the deaths. But I think, you know, in many of these cases, they would likely still be alive today if their power hadn't have gone out in the freezing cold. So my view, having been sort of pretty deep inside this story, my colleagues were speaking to families. I was doing the statistical analysis and the public records requests and what have you. My view is it's not so much deliberate obfuscation of the number, but it's an approach to gathering the numbers that is almost bound to have a large uncounted number of deaths that were actually linked to the storm. And it's very similar to what we saw after Hurricane Maria. So after Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico, the official death count for months afterwards was 64. Yet analyses very similar to the one I've run, and I've in fact used my methods on the 
Puerto Rico deaths, and I find this pretty much the same as the New York Times found at the same time. When you do this excess deaths approach, you get a much larger number. And that was a little bit of a different disaster. That was, they lost power over a very long time. But again, it was similarly people who were already medically vulnerable were their conditions exacerbated by the fact that they didn't have electric power and clinics didn't have electric power and so on. And, and that increases death, right? So unfortunately, that's right. just what happens. Well, Texas, it's very acute in one week. And, and cold is, yeah, cold is a killer. Yeah, no, I, I totally get it. We're talking with Peter Aldis, the science reporter for BuzzFeed.com, BuzzFeed News. I'm curious, given the importance of death statistics in, at the very least, helping establish a public consensus or support for political policies, or should we redo our power grid, you know, for example, or should we reevaluate? What's the lesson out of this? Is it that there is a different way that we should be evaluating these statistics, publishing these statistics? Or what's your recommendation? Well, Where do think, we go with this? Yeah, I, th- I think there are two things. One is I would argue that the methods we used are more appropriate to get the, the full toll in circumstances like that. That's one right. conclusion. Specifically for Texas, Texas was warned that its grid was vulnerable to outages under conditions like this, specifically when a similar but not quite so prolonged storm happened in 2011. And, okay, the legislature there has just passed some measure that will improve the situation a bit. But I think if you speak to energy experts, they will tell you that more could be done. Yeah, I get it. I totally get it. Peter Aldis, science reporter at BuzzFeed News, buzzfeed.com, peteraldis.com, and P. Aldis on Twitter, and, and of course, at BuzzFeed. Peter, thank you. Great talking with you. Good, Good work. Good to be with you. Yeah, my pleasure. We'll be back with more of the news of the day and your calls here on the Tom Hartman program. Stick around. Rose in Chicago. Hey, Rose, what's up? Hey, Tom. I want to point out that in addition to all the laws that the Republicans are passing in the red states to suppress the vote and to give themselves the power to overturn elections, Mm -hmm. they're also trying to put up all kinds of hurdles and sometimes even outright bans on the ballot initiatives, which is sometimes the one chance that people's voices can be heard. And for example, um, I think as you talked about yesterday, they're trying to overturn the will of the people in regards to things such as restoring ex-felon voting rights, um, legalizing marijuana, even expanding Medicaid. So the Republicans' nefarious attempts at silencing the voters should be obvious to everyone, but if only the news media would cover this stuff. Well, I, I think the media is, is pointing it out. The problem is that Republicans don't care. They're, they have gone from doing this stuff quietly in the back rooms to now doing it out loud right in front of all of us. I mean, look at what's going on in Arizona right now. Now you've got Republicans in Pennsylvania going, hey, let's do this in Pennsylvania too. And and these are not designed to put Donald Trump back into the presidency. Uh, you know, Trump thinks, uh, apparently, according to some of the reporting, you know, Maggie Haberman at the New York Times, uh, one of the more credible sources on, you know, insider information from Trump, Trump believes that these audits are going to prove that the election was stolen from him and he's going to be put into the White House in August. Right. And that's crazy. I mean, that, that's just not going to happen. I mean, he's, he's delusional. He's literally uh, delusional. Whether, whether, you know, it's uh, whatever it is. But the, True, the, it just creates all this confusion but, for but, people. So, but, but that's yeah. the point. What it actually yeah. does is it diminishes Americans' faith in democracy. 
And that's the goal of foreign countries that are run by autocrats and oligarchs. That's the goal of right-wing billionaires who literally do not believe in democracy. These billionaires who call themselves libertarians. Ask any libertarian. Democracy is mob rule. Democracy is not a good thing. You need to have an oligarchy. You need the, you need the, the wealthy, uh, you know, few who are smart and wise and well-informed and have access to all the information. They need to be the ones running things. So, I mean, that's where we're at. Rose, I got to move along, but thank you for the call. Paul in uh, Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's up? Oh, you know, Tom, I'm thinking about your, your uh, wondering aloud as to whether or not Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin are somehow being uh, enticed off. by... Uh, yeah, bought off. Okay. <laughs> I thought I'd let you say it for me. Okay, so, okay, then let me support you on that by asking this question. If they're not being bought off, in other words, if it's not some kind of covert buy-off, then what do they want as Democrats that they think they're going to be able to accomplish with this strategy? Or let's, let's look at well, it. I have no is, answer okay? to that question, Paul, and I think it's, a, it's, it is one that really supports that notion. Do you have an answer to that question, or was it rhetorical? Well, no, I'm asking. There's, I'm trying to figure out the political, because I was going to make another political-leaning conversation uh, you know, uh, supposition, for instance, let's say they're they're a little bit more Republican-y as Democrats and being from Arizona and West Virginia and cinema uh, or mansion or both together want they'd, they'd like to uh, take the see they're not taking the initiative and saying, no, we'd like something a little more conservative in terms of le legislation and we'll get 50 we'll get 50 Republican senators to vote for this and presumably another 10 Democrats. You know, if this had to do with abortion, you, that would make sense. <laughs> you know, but it's, That's what I mean, I'm trying you know, to say. what That's was every week in the Trump administration? Infrastructure week. This is about infrastructure. So I don't think this has anything to do with ideology, Paul. I, I think this no, is I, raw politics. And I think that I'm increasingly coming to the, the firm belief the mansion and cinema are being bought off by right wing billionaires. Well, they're going to they're going to you're, you're right. They're going to have they're going to get to the point where they're going to have to prove that they're not being bought up. They're 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 taking it to that point because you ca you cannot just induce you can't just stand on principle. You can't you'll have to you have to induce the principle and say this is what we mean. This is what we mean by this kind of legislation. Well, exactly. We're going to get 60 senators to support it by by. By making this kind of a suggestion, by by making this kind of a which, Senate by the bill, way, is what is is what a couple you know is is what Joe Manchin was actually trying to do with the January sixth commission. I mean, you know, if you consider that a good faith effort, then you know, yeah, that makes sense. But even that got politicized because the you know because you've got Republicans who were co-conspirators. Right. Well, I'll tell you what. I, I'm going to make this prediction that it we have the Democrats have one more. Uh, nuclear option or what we call that um mm -hmm. left right um you got 30 seconds paul what is it yeah well they have one left and so it, i think you mean I one more reconciliation be, uh, opportunity no the parliamentarian yeah, just blew that up huh the parliamentarian just blew that up oh you mean oh, from two years of not using reconciliation i you know i'm not right. i'm not sure that that is 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 carved in stone Okay, well, I'm saying is that you're going to see Manchin and Cinema stand in the way of that if they have that opportunity. That's how you'll know that they're being bought off. Is that they will they won't even give you 50 votes. They're not even yeah. going to give 50 votes. If I am right, 
then you are right, Paul. And, uh, I, you know, uh, it's so <laughs> There you go. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. Time will tell. Paul, thank you very much for the call. Time will tell on all those other cliches. Right. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Tom Harvin here with you. Marilyn in Sun City, West Arizona. Hey, Marilyn, what's on your mind today? Thank you. I am done with Kirsten Cinema and people taking the Democratic Party hostage and hijacking it. I live in Arizona and I voted for her. I expected her to keep up with, you know, she knows what's at stake here. It's a lose-lose situation. I don't think that we should go with our tail between our legs and begging them. I realize what's at stake here, but I just think somebody needs to go up to them and say, like George Bush said, either you're with us or you're with the Republican Party. And, you know, rather than wait for them to hijack us and say, if you don't do what we want, we might become Republicans, I would say, you know what, if you want to be be a Republican, there's the door, because the people of Arizona voted Democrat. And you'll never get another term. But then you've got Senate Majority Leader Mitch McTurtle. Yes, I realize that. Yeah. But you I know get what? your outrage, Marilyn. I just think I'm done being taken hostage. And then, you know what, 2022 will come along and 2024. And, you know, maybe Mark Kelly, Gabby Gifford's husband can talk to them. I don't know. But I think we need to call their bluff and just say, you know what, you were voted by the Democratic voters of Arizona. And if you cannot live up to what their expectations are, you go join the Republicans and we'll vote in somebody who can. She is up for re-election in 2024, is she not? Do you know, Marilyn? I don't know off the top of I my think, head. I, I believe that's the case. Yeah, I think, it, I think it is 2024. It could be 2022. I honestly don't know. Yeah. But does it matter? She, just, she, she either is going to serve the Democratic voters or you go now and, rejoin, and join the Republicans. I wonder if she's not waiting for this fake troll recount to come out. And if it comes out that Republicans won, she'll just say, oh, well, really, I'm a Republican. Like, I don't know what her thought is, but truly, I don't care. Yeah. Here's why I was asking. I'm pretty sure it's not 2022, because I think she was elected in you you could know, be right. th- three years ago. So we should put it in 2024. That's, you know, basically three years from now. That is enough time for right-wing billionaires to funnel literally millions of dollars into a leadership super PAC, which is what all of these senators now are setting up for themselves. These so-called leadership super PACs, you can use that money for anything. It's what Trump has right now. You can use that money. Right. You can buy a house with it. You could, you know, you could, you can, you can just basically use it for anything. So for some of these right-wing billionaires whose fossil fuel interests would be threatened by by uh, the, the, the American jobs plan, by the infrastructure bill, to simply invest five, 10, 15 million dollars in Kirsten Cinema and just funnel that money into her pocket via super PAC or other means. I mean, you know, uh, guarantee her, hey, you're not gonna get reelected in 2024. People like Marilyn are really pissed off at you. They're gonna vote you out. But the day after you're voted out of office, we've got a job for you that pays five million bucks a year. I mean, and that's, that's what Paul Ryan's doing right go- now. 
and let her go and don't let the door hit her on the way out. I, yeah. You know what? <laughs> I get it. Well, I, here's just the, I just don't want her representing me. Yeah, the uh, Coalition to Protect American w- Workers, the CPAW, this is a right-wing group that is run by Mark Short, who used to work for Donald Trump, that, has, that is funded by right-wing billionaires. We just got, uh, Sean just forwarded this uh, source watch. The Coalition to Protect American Workers plans to raise $25 million to prevent Joe Biden's infrastructure plan from passing Congress. And uh, they're specifically targeting Kirsten Cinema. CPAW has targeted moderate Democrats, in, including uh, uh, Carolyn Bordeaux of Georgia, Connor Lamb of Pennsylvania, and Kirsten Cinema of Arizona, the, the first two well, being you look members at- of the House. Look at the calls you're getting from Arizona. We are outraged. Yeah, I get it. I totally get it. Thank you very much, Marilyn. Great to hear from you. I appreciate it. Bill in St. Helens, Oregon. Hey, Bill, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. So I was in an online discussion and someone was saying, hey, has the constitutionality of the filibuster ever been challenged? So I looked it up and it has been. But the Supreme Court has dropped the cases uh, because they find that the, the uh, plaintiffs had no standing. And they additionally agreed with a district court, lower district court ruling that it was a it was a question political in nature, nature, and really not theirs to decide. So that's kind of where that was at. The next question. Well, asked, let me let me had, just add to that, Bill, that the Constitution explicitly says that the House and Senate shall write their own rules, and the filibuster no, no, is no, a Senate no. rule. So, Tom, that's that's Article One, Section Five, and I totally agree. The problem <laughs> is. It, it does not. It does, no, don't even go there with me. The, the problem is, no, no one. We we vested these powers. This is way off my topic, but we vested these powers in the Congress, and no rational human being would ever say, "By the way, we're going to give you the power to override other provisions of the Constitution, such as Article One, Section Three, where the VP casts a deciding vote, tie-breaking vote." Uh, no, no, nobody would ever vest that power. So this is an abomination. But not my point. My point is, so there's no standing. The American people have no standing. They can make their own rules. Okay, I'm, throwing, I'm just throwing stuff at the wall here, Tom. But you know what? As we speak, President Biden could, could contact the Senate majority, uh, and he could say, you know what? I don't recognize the Constitution of the filibuster. I don't recognize its constitutionality. You send me over that 54 to 35, 1-6 commission vote. You send that over, passed by the House, passed 54 to 35 by the Senate, and I will sign that into law. And, of course, then the Republicans are going to say, that's a, con- a violation of our, the Constitution. Let me tell you, Tom, then, unfortunately, a very biased Supreme Court, then it goes to the Supreme Court. Guaranteed, because the question is, does the president have the right to ignore a filibuster he considers unconstitutional? You get the whole idea. Will it ever happen? No. But I'm throwing ideas at the wall, how we break this thing wide open. I think he could do it. I think he could sign it into law. It would create a constitutional crisis. But where are we anyway, Tom? Where are we anyway? Okay. Well, that's, that's the big question, Bill. You're, you're absolutely right. It would create a constitutional crisis. And the question is, you know, whether an institutionalist like Joe Biden is willing to go that far. Certainly Abraham Lincoln was willing to go that far. You know? I could go that far. <laughs> and Andrew Jackson was willing to go that far. He defied the Supreme Court twice. Lincoln defied the Supreme Court on Dred Scott because it would go to the Supreme Court. And I'm guessing that the Supreme Court, if they, if they decided to pick it up, would probably r- rule that the Senate gets to make their own rules and therefore that's not a real law now. And so, it, you know, he, he signed into law something that's not a law. So then you get into the question of who's going to implement that law. Tom, they're, they're allowed to make rules that, that either violate or eliminate other provisions in the Constitution. You're never going to sell me that, ever. And anybody that tries to sell me that, I do have some plans. Well, what's the order. provision of the Constitution that the filibuster violates? 
Are you talking about where the Constitution says that the House and Senate shall operate based on a majority of members? No, 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 no. I'm saying they've got the... the that was so grossly misinterpreted they shall be allowed to make their own rules. Right. I'm saying we have to take the position that we don't give you the authority to violate the Constitution in, in, under any circumstance. No, you can't pass a law that creates a special rule, especially when the Constitution clearly, clearly expresses intent when it gives the VP the right to cast a tie-breaking vote. That's intent. It's clear right. as a bell. That's a simple majority the filibuster eliminates that right. It takes a right away from the vice president. So now they have eliminated a constitutional provision based on their rules. Tom, if we let them go, I'd be in the Supreme Court myself standing up saying, what if they pass a rule saying no Democrats can ever speak on the Senate floor? What if they pass that rule, Tom? Is that constitutional? <laughs> see where it goes? You see where No, I, goes? I get it, Bill. I get it. And I, I think it's yeah, yeah, and I think you're making a strong argument. I, it's an argument, though, that has been challenged repeatedly for you know, well over 150 years. Not it's, in the Supreme Court. <laughs> well, yeah, okay. So, uh, but even then, I mean, you know, that, that's going to take a year or more. You have to build the case. By that time, you've got, you know, democracy collapsed. Well, in, in the meantime, no rules are. In the meantime, no laws are getting. No meaningful laws are getting. I posted a thing that said, "Mansion of Cinema." You have to understand the Democratic Party could be doing great things, but for you, that's the bottom line. Yeah, I'm with you, Bill. Thank you. Thank you very much for the call. Good to hear from you. Thoughtful stuff. In fact, we'll be back with more of your calls in just a moment. It's the Tom Hartman program, helping you win the water cooler wars. Now that we're back to having water coolers again, we actually have one here. Well, it's sort of, it doesn't cool, but, you know, we have water. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. We have a water jug here helping you win the water jug wars. And a porcelain tank for it. We'll be back. Delve into the shadows of the mind. With Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Today we're reading from the Constitution Today by Akhil Reed Amar. It's a collection of essays. This is from his essays on the judiciary. This was originally published on Fine Law in 2002. It's titled More on Unfree Speech. The Supreme Court prohibits network television cameras and radio microphones from its public oral arguments. Transcripts of the back and forth between attorneys and the justices are not posted on the court's website until weeks have passed and the public's interest has waned. Members of the public may not even take notes in the gallery about what is being said in open court. 
Meanwhile, in its opinions, the court trumpets the importance of free speech and a free press. On the topic of free expression, why doesn't the Supreme Court practice what it preaches? That was the question Steve Calabrese and I recently posed in an op-ed in the New York Times marking the opening of the Supreme Court's term earlier this month. Here I'll expand on the court's reluctance to welcome the First Amendment into its own courtroom. The First Amendment is the darling of the current court. Though sharply divided on many other issues, justices across the spectrum agree that free expression rights should be construed broadly. But the court's love affair with that First Amendment is a relatively modern development. Less than a decade after the adoption of the Bill of Rights, circuit-riding justices enthusiastically enforced a 1798 sedition law that made it a federal offense to criticize the president. Early in the 20th century, the court upheld punishment of a newspaper publisher for editorializing against state judges. During World War I, the justices sent Eugene Debs, a notable presidential candidate, to prison for peacefully criticizing the government. Indeed, before 1925, the court had never, not once, used free expression pr principles to invalidate government censorship, even as it routinely construed property rights broadly to invalidate economic regulation. Today's justices have repudiated this regressive legacy, but the residue of the early court's indifference to free expression remains visible in the court building itself, as the aforementioned rules and practices indicate. Perhaps these court rules and practices do not literally abridge freedom of speech or of the press, but if not, they sure come close. After all, the apparent purpose of these rules is precisely to limit free expression and free thought. Consider the rule against note-taking. A person in the courtroom can clean his wallet, or twiddle his thumbs, or tug his earlobe, or engage in countless other mindless activities, but is prohibited from engaging in the cognitive and expressive activity of writing down what he hears the justices saying, along with his own comments or questions or criticisms. Consider also the rule against the media's cameras. The court's rules do not bar security cameras in the courtroom, and such cameras may well be in the room for all we know. What the justices are banning is thus not cameras per se, but network television cameras, cameras that might broadcast information about the court to the American public. The harms that these rules seek to prevent are harms that pivot on the acts of thought and expression themselves. And these are the very sorts of harms the government typically may not seek to prevent under the Supreme Court's standard First Amendment case law. To put the point another way, no Supreme Court rule bars carrying a pencil into the courtroom or wearing a chopstick in one's hairdo. The ban is not based on security concerns but is rather directly aimed at expressive activity per se, using one's pencil to take notes. More generally, one of the core purposes of the First Amendment is to protect a robust and timely public discourse about government officials and government decision-making, including, of course, judicial officials and judicial officials' decisions. But that discourse is precisely what is dampened by the court's own rule about its own building. This is especially so because the day of oral argument is one of the two days the other being when the final Supreme Court decision is announced, that the American public and the American media are most likely to focus on a given legal case. If discourse that day is dampened, the public has lost a unique and irreplaceable occasion for democratic discussion and deliberation. When it comes to other government arenas, post offices, airports, school grounds, and so on, the court has typically insisted that such forums allow as much speech as is functionally compatible with the basic purpose of the arena. Yet in its own building, the court represses expressive activity without any strong showing of incompatibility or disruption. There is a word for this, and it is spelled 
H-Y-P-O-C-R-I-S-Y, hypocrisy. The court's transcript policies are also unfree in another sense. In the days after oral argument, the transcripts are anything but free. The court gives a temporary monopoly to a private company, which in turn charges high fees for transcripts. The court would never, nowadays at least, give a private company a monopoly over its written opinions. Why should its oral arguments be treated any differently? There's nothing secret or confidential about oral arguments. Unlike judicial conferences where justices deliberate privately among themselves, oral arguments take place in open court. They are public events conducted by public servants with public money. The public deserves full access. To recast the point in the language of federalism, Americans outside the Beltway deserve electronic access comparable to the ability of those who live in Washington, D.C., Virginia, and Maryland to attend arguments in person. If television cameras are not acceptable, at a minimum, the arguments should be carried live on public radio, as happened in December 2000 for Bush v. Gore, and transcripts should be freely available immediately. The book is The Constitution Today by Akhil Reed Amar. And welcome back. Sandra in Omaha, Nebraska. Hey, Sandra, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? Oh, as an old ex-teacher, uh, I had an idea that um, I'm going to give your listeners an assignment, and it may apply to former IRS, current IRS, maybe white hat hackers who want to do good for the world, and have them do a deep dive into the finances of Cinema and Mansion, and maybe the parliamentarian, too, because I think there's probably money-changing hands, and if that could be revealed, then maybe that if, would encourage them to step down. If there is money changing hands, it's money coming from people uh, for whom hiring lawyers and CPAs to make sure that it is all squeaky clean legal is chump change. And yeah, uh, I know. <laughs> so, like I said, just in the last couple of days, I have come to the conclusion, and particularly, I mean, what cemented it was watching Kirsten Cinema with John Cornyn. That, yeah. that these two people are bought off. They're just bought yeah. off. And, and I understand yeah. that there's a few other Democratic senators who are also unwilling to vote to end the filibuster or at least inclined to go along with Manchin and Cinema. I don't know about those cases, but in, with these two senators, I, I probably need to spend a little more time over at SourceWatch uh, doing a deep dive. Yeah. <laughs> that information is available, sourcewatch.org. So. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm with you. Just wishing for things that probably won't ever happen, but you know they're doing it for Trump now. So let's hope that they carry that uh, position on down and and just investigate, investigate, investigate. There so. you go. There you go, Sandra. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you. Spot on. All right. Appreciate the call, Mike in Simi Valley, California. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. I got my notes down here, and I'm ready to rent. Okay. Um, I'm start. Uh, it's. I mean, how bad, weak, and stupid. Is the GOP I mean, you know, and Trump's base, besides being racist? I mean, I want to just stop the confusion, you know, because it's 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 almost it's it's kind of like the, the invasion of the body snatchers. What did I have here? I had Jim Jones is, is part of it. I mean, it's it's getting to the point where we need somebody. We need a voice. Jim, to be Jim, able to though, explain. You said, uh, excuse me, Mike. You said yeah. aside from racism. 
That's the problem. I'm I mean, sorry. racism is, 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 you know, this is what the Republican Party is selling right now. You know, racism is probably one of the most powerful forces out there. And the no Republican question. Party has harnessed it. And they are using it as a political weapon. And the Democrats are trying to push back, saying we're trying to, you know, we're trying to eliminate racism. And the Republicans are like, oh, no, 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 we're going to fully embrace this stuff. And it's just like, I mean, they're playing with fire. They're playing with dynamite, but the, the, you know, American politics has been doing that with race for 240 years. Well, it, it seems today with democracy, socialism, and communism, to the base and to a lot of people, they don't know the difference. No, right. And so, it, 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 what I'm saying is that we need somebody, you, for instance, or somebody, to be able to explain exactly what the heck is going on here. Yeah. Well, these people, the the base, are not politically sophisticated. Uh, I get, yeah, yeah, I get what you're saying, Mike. Thank you for the call. And I share your outrage. I share your outrage. Tom Hartman here with you. I mean, this is this is a real challenge. I'm going to pick up your phone calls in just a second here, but this is just a, this is a very real challenge that Democrats in the Senate are now facing because Senator Cinema went on TV with uh, John Cornyn, the Republican from Texas, one of the more toxic, you know, deeply in the pockets of the fossil fuel billionaires, uh, went on TV with him and said, oh, the filibuster is just to make us work together because that's how it was designed. No, it wasn't designed that way. It was designed, uh, you know, to stop any discussion in, the, in 1837 was the first year it was applied. And, you know, by John C. Calhoun, and it was, it, was to de- it was designed to block any discussion of abolition of slavery. Pure and simple. And so you've got cinemas, you know, saying this. You've got Joe Manchin saying this. We know now that Manchin is a, a graduate of uh, ALEC. I don't know what's going on with cinema, but I'll, I would be willing to bet. Well, I'm not, I, I don't generally bet, but I am wondering out loud. Is a whole bunch of right-wing billionaire money that normally flows into, say, for example, the pockets of John Cornyn or Ted Cruz, is that money now flowing into the pockets of Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin? Is that what's going on? Are we watching two United States senators, two Democratic United States senators being bought off right in front of our eyes? I can come up with no other explanation. Can you? I mean, why would they do this? This is just amazing. Anyhow, picking up your phone calls, Kyle in Albany, New York. Hey, Kyle, what's up? Hey, Tom, how are you? Well, I think my, my deal follows exactly what you were just saying. Um, on Twitter, I was sticking up for Joe Biden's uh, morning tweet two days ago, which was about the American jobs plan and basically talking about how all the jobs are blue collar and their union jobs, you know, his speech, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I, somebody was like, they, they came out with the whatever, Uncle Joe, Creepy Joe, whatever it was, right? So I just, I happened to, like, challenge them with some facts about, I said, you do realize that this jobs plan is going to replace, you know, so many people's jobs. They don't have to have college degrees. You know, I came at them with some facts. Turns out, he starts to call me a communist. Basically, I think I was talking about, I got sucked into the Marxist labor value of theory, BS. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. And, 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 and so I actually used a link from you and a couple of other scholarly links to, like, chop that down. And he kept with me for eight tweets. But then he goes, you're a communist. I'm blocking you. Right. Okay, whatever you don't like is communism or socialism. They don't understand anything. And my big street is my mother was an educator. She hated charter schools, okay, when it came out. Right. And, and, and the fact, public educator. And the fact is all that crap that they've done over the last 40 or 50 years seems to have worked. They have dumbed down the populace, dumbed down the education, and people don't know the history such as what you just read. And white people like myself are unwilling to look at it and go, well, yeah, maybe we did favor ourselves for all these 240 or 400 you think? years. You think? Yeah, Kyle, it's, 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 it's a problem. And, and, and also, you know, uh, Twitter and Facebook, their algorithms promote outrage rather than anything else. Plus, both those venues are filled with professional trolls. You've got, you know, trolls who are who are, uh, uh, you know, working for foreign governments. You've got trolls who are working for right-wing billionaires. you got, I mean, it's just, it's, it's amazing. I, I, I posted something, you know, just a nice comment about Joe Biden's speech. Uh, I think it was on Saturday. And, uh, you know, a bunch of people, you know, jumped on it going, oh, you know, Democrats and Republicans are just the same, you know, which was the main theme of the, of the Russian trolls in the 2016 election. So I, you know, I blocked a few of those people, and then I went back and I looked, and you know, they're like waving that, you know, oh, Hartman blocked me like a bloody flag. So I just, I unblocked everybody and just thought, you know, screw it. It's like I'm dealing with teenagers, and yes, it's sir, very, very difficult. To, yeah, go ahead, Kyle. Okay, what, you're totally right. One thing to your comment you just made about Cinema and Mansion, the Koch brothers, yeah. and I, I include the Mercers in this money pool. Um, so I believe you're right. I believe that what's happened is the, the, the very, very rich people who don't really care about which party carries their water have realized that they need to start expanding a little bit and trying to find these, quote, conservative Democrats, which really, to me, has never really meant, you know, the kind of Democratic Party that we've had since LBJ. Yeah, you know, I'm with so you. That's my thought. And thank you so much for illuminating that. Yeah, you're, you're welcome, Colin. Good talking with you. Thank you for the call. And thanks for listening to SiriusXM. Morris in Long Beach, California. Hey, Morris, what's on your mind today? All right, brother. Man, I know I'm on the clock. And by the way, Alan Lickman, that's an awesome writer. He wrote a book called White Protestant Nation. Yeah. And if I was a gambler, if I was, I don't gamble. But if I was a gambler, I'd take him with me to Vegas. Because this guy is hit every time. He oh, yeah, Alan Lickman's been on the show a number of times. He's, he's brilliant. Yeah. That's a bad man. And Joe Manchin, to me, he sounds like he a Dixiecrat, straight up to me, a Dixiecrat. Yeah. And this is the time when we need LBJ. Remember LG, LBJ was in big old hands, would look at you in the eye and, and persuade you to do something? You know, that's the kind of brother we need right now. And, and uh, Papa Joe has got one issue. He don't have five. He has one. All he's got to do is make sure that he is successful addressing this COVID-19, and we're going to have to wait for the next election cycle because they got us where we can't do nothing. But if he is successful in defeating this COVID-19 and getting us back to some normality, uh, I think we got a, a pretty good shot of keeping both houses uh, the next election and White House. Well, we're going to keep the White House for a minute. But all he's got to do is just go and address COVID-19. Forget uh, Joe Manchin. He's a Dixiecrat. He's on the payroll. We're not going to get very much done. Uh, uh, the re um, reconciliation was awesome. It saved us. Um, praise God for it. But right now, uh, Professor, we just might want to be happy with Mr. Uh, Biden being successful addressing this COVID-19 because they're going to muddy up everything else. Yeah, here's the That's problem all. with that, Morris. I, you know, I totally get what you're saying, but, but let me push back gently. Go ahead. At the national level, I think your analysis is absolutely accurate. Uh, 
And I think, frankly, the Democrats nationally are going to have a really good year in 2022. The problem is at the state level. You've got a whole bunch of states that are Republican controlled. They're passing laws that are going to give Republican legislatures the ability to throw out votes and game the system so that in 2024, whether it's Trump or Tom Cotton, they will be able to throw out votes for whoever the Democrat is and simply declare the Republican the winner. They're setting that up right now, and they're going to deepen and strengthen that hold after the 2022 election if we don't start taking back some of these states. And taking back some of these states, particularly the purple states, you know, establishing a Democratic beachhead in these purple states is going to be a real challenge if there's not, you know, I mean, getting about 50 percent nationally, okay, no, no big deal. We can do that based on the based on his success with COVID. I agree with you. But you've got to, we've got to reach out to the, the independents and the, the old Eisenhower Republicans and say, no, do, you know, Democrats can actually make the government work for you. And in order to do that, we've got to pass the infrastructure bill and the American Jobs Plan. I mean, you know, or the American Jobs Plan and the, uh, I forget what he's calling the soft infrastructure one, you know, the, the helping people out plan. If he can pass those things, there's going to be, you know, such a surge of prosperity happening in red and purple states that people are going to go, wow, these Democrats are onto something. You know, we need to be voting for Democrats at the local level. We want some of this prosperity here in Mississippi, too, or here in Arizona or wherever it may be. If he can't do that, if he can't do those things, then what's going to happen with those kind of low information voters in the states is they're just going to stay with the Republicans. That's my yeah, fear. I agree. I know, no, I'm with you. I agree. But something I told you a couple of years ago, and I still believe it today, nobody's talking about it. We had a big blue wave before, and, mm-hmm. and it hasn't subsided. It's just getting higher and higher. And I don't care what these well, – one thing that they are doing is tripping me out, that's freaking me out, is when they can actually legitimately say, well, even though you got – this guy got more votes, we're going to give it to this other party. Now, that, that right there is too much. But I yeah. think if they were to try a move like that, then we would really have a problem. I think we really would. I don't care how many states. If they tried that, you got a problem. You got to say. They are going to try that, Morris. They are not passing these laws just for fun. Then we'll be in court, my brother. We'll be in court again. Well, yeah, and it'll be before the Supreme Court. And (laughs) the Supreme Court with Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh. I I am concerned. Morris, thank you for the call. You know, yeah, I totally get it. I I completely agree with you. You know, in the short-term sense and on the national level the analysis is spot on but we've got to do bigger and better than that you're listening to tom hartman visit tomhartman.com for audio and video archives it's the tom hartman program the place where despair is not an option we've got to get active Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. 
By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Our book today is The Embattled Vote in America from the Founding to the Present by Alan J. Lichtman. This is from the introduction titled Voters and Non-Voters. On February 18, 1965, advocates for the voting rights of disenfranchised African Americans ordered a rare nighttime march in the small town of Marion, Alabama, part of the state's Black Belt, to protest the jailing of James Orange. Prosecutors had charged Orange with contributing to the delinquency of minors after he enlisted students in voter registration drives. Alabama state troopers responded to the protest by beating peaceful demonstrators with billy clubs and sending terrified marchers fleeing into the night. Some sought refuge from police violence in a nearby restaurant, Max Cafe. State troopers followed them into the establishment, however, and one of those troopers, James Bonnard Fowler, fatally shot an unarmed 26-year-old black voting rights worker, Jimmy Lee Jackson. Insisting that Jackson had reached for a gun, Fowler claimed self-defense. Eyewitnesses told a very different story. They said that Jackson was trying to protect his mother from police violence and that Fowler shot him deliberately and without provocation. While Jackson languished in a hospital for eight days before dying from his wound, Alabama officials issued a warrant for his arrest for the assault of a police officer. They did not arrest, indict, or discipline Fowler, or even release his name to the public. Fowler remained on the state police force, and a year later he shot and killed another unarmed black man, Nathan Johnson Jr., during an altercation at the Alabaster City Jail. State police officials were quick to purge both killings from Fowler's personnel file, but fired him in 1968 for assaulting his white police supervisor. In 2007, as part of a federal state effort to reopen cold cases from the civil rights era, Alabama prosecutors indicted the 73-year-old Fowler for murder. Two weeks before trial was set to begin in 2010, Fowler pleaded guilty to manslaughter and served five months of a six-month sentence. Fowler died in 2015, 50 years after killing Jimmy Lee Jackson. Americans were dying for the vote more than 175 years after the nation's founding because the framers made a consequential mistake when they drafted the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, the Constitution's first ten amendments. They failed to enshrine in these pivotal documents of our democracy the right to vote, not just for men or even only white men, but for any American. Among many enumerated rights that the government cannot abridge, the right to vote remained conspicuously absent and remains so to this day. All subsequent amendments protecting the voting rights of racial minorities, women, and young people, the 15th Amendment on race, the 19th Amendment on sex, 26th Amendment on age, are framed negatively, stipulating not what the states must do to ensure people's voting rights in America's democratic republic, but what they cannot do. Jimmy Lee Jackson died, one could plausibly argue, because the political leaders who drafted these amendments perpetuated the framers' mistake of failing to establish an affirmative right to vote. Jackson died because white supremacists who controlled southern governments had circumvented the 15th Amendment's prohibition 
against denying the right to vote, quote, on account of race, color, or condition of previous servitude. They did so through patently discriminatory, although seemingly race-neutral, restrictions such as poll taxes and literacy tests. As the pioneers of modern democracy, the founders understood that the right to vote grounds all other rights, that it empowers Americans to become participants in government rather than mere petitioners. But it was their omission of voting rights that triggered a war over America's embattled vote that continues to rage in the halls of Congress and in the courtrooms of federal judges. Yet, as in Marion, Alabama, it has spilled into the streets, too, with life and death at stake and the ongoing struggle for people's right to consent in their governing. Opposition to voting rights for all Americans has revolved around three critical issues. Despite the revolutionary rallying cry of no taxation without representation for most of U.S. history, the American political leadership has considered suffrage not a natural right, but a privilege bestowed by government on a political community restricted by considerations of wealth, sex, race, residence, literacy, criminal conviction, and citizenship. The notion of privileged access to the vote survives into our own time, albeit in subtler forms than in the past. Since the early republic, proponents of a limited vote have waived the banner of voter fraud in earlier times to justify the disenfranchisement of supposedly corruptible people such as the propertyless workers, women, racial minorities, or immigrants. Today, it is the allegations of such forms of alleged election fraud as voter impersonation, repeat voting, voting by non-citizens, or balloting in the name of dead people that are used to justify restrictive measures like voter photo ID laws or draconian purges of registration rolls. Numerous studies have documented that such voter fraud is vanishingly small in recent elections, but the outcry continues as loudly as ever. Disputes over the vote have been intensely partisan, with principal justifications for voting restrictions functioning as thinly masked attempts to favor one party over another. From the end of Reconstruction through the early 20th century, for example, it was the lily-white Democratic Party that benefited politically from suppressing the African-American vote. In recent years, the partisan calculations have reversed as African-Americans have become the most reliable of Democratic voters and Republicans have come to depend on the white vote. The book, The Embattled Vote in America by Alan J. Lichtman. And welcome back, George in Chicago. Hey George, what's on your mind? Well, what's on my mind is what's always on my mind, and we can't say enough, those of us who listen to you constantly. Thank you for everything you and Louise and your staff do to educate and enlighten us. Well, thank you, George. But that's um, not what you called about. No. Um, I think most of us have probably read the book Animal Farm at one time or another by George Orwell. Mm -hmm. And the most famous phrase in there is probably all of the animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. Mm -hmm. And today we have the spectacle of a true insider, Don McGahn, who to my mind is a scofflaw and a fugitive from justice because he has been completely ignoring a legal and constitutional subpoena for about two years. Yep. And now he's testifying in front of a Senate committee out of the public eye, confidentially in secret, do we even know if he's being sworn and put under oath? You know, this guy is a criminal as far as I'm concerned. He's betrayed his oath as a lawyer. I agree. And yet he's being treated with kid gloves like this. Why? 
Well, he's the guy who holds the smoking gun. He was there when Trump tried to fire. He, I mean, the, the main thing that we know, because it's in, the, it's in the Mueller report, is that Trump wanted to fire Jim Comey. Uh, well, actually, it even goes beyond Comey. Trump wanted to fire Mueller. Trump called Don McGahn into his office and ordered him to fire Mueller. McGahn said, no, I can't do that. Then Trump ordered later, when that got leaked, Trump ordered McGahn to lie about it and to create a phony document saying that Trump never told him to fire Mueller. That's all obstruction of justice. It's criminal obstruction of justice on the part of Donald Trump. And Don McGahn was the guy in the room for that. So when you've got the guy in the room who could actually produce a criminal indictment against somebody else, you know, you don't just beat them down. You, you, you draw what you can out of them however you can get it. Am I making sense here, George? Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. Although what you said about Trump ordering McGahn to fire the special prosecutor, that just betrays once again the fact that Donald Trump doesn't know or doesn't care about how the Constitution or the law works. Because Correct. the White House was outside the range and the... the uh, structure of authority for that. Well, McGahn did not have the authority to fire Mueller. the president would have to fire him. But basically, Trump was saying, go find somebody who has the authority to fire Mueller and make it happen. And McCann was just saying, no, can't do that. But, you know, I, I share your outrage, particularly over the last two years, and your opinion of Don McGahn. I don't disagree on that either. It's going to be interesting to see if any leaks come out of this committee hearing. It's going to be fascinating. George, I got to move along, but thank you for the call. Arthur, also in Chicago. Hey, Arthur, what's up? How are you doing this afternoon, Tom? I'm well. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm thinking about what this is, the old, tired, pathetic playbook of the Republicans. Let's deflect, let's, let's project some, some accountability onto someone else. Yep. And Trump, and they're controlling, they, they're getting ready to present, and they have been, as you said, the last two weeks. I don't listen to or watch any right-wing hate, uh, hate radio or TV. But it's what Trump is there. doing, they're, they're presenting a false narrative. Mm -hmm. And they're going to pound it and pound it into their base is like it's 40 going north. But I don't understand. This is what I get. I believe Trump supporters are seriously suffering. They already had their prejudices and racism. They are seriously suffering the trauma of what I like to call PBPSD, post-black president stress disorder. <laughs> they certainly had P, P whatever, you know, they, they, they had present stress disorder when Obama was in the White House. Yeah, I think you're right. Oh, it, it blew their mind. Oh, it, 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 yeah. it, it turned their egos upside down. It just smashed them. Yeah. The first black president, then he had the audacity to be intelligent, charming, a lawyer. Thoughtful, graduated a great husband. Yeah, a great husband, a great family man, a, a good Christian. All yeah. of this stuff that the Republicans purport to be their own, you know, and yeah. it's like... Tomorrow, it's like, who are they? I mean, are they just slow? Don't they know them? Have they never in your years encountered a liar or a con man? Don't they know it when they see it? Don't their instincts tell them? Well, that's a good question, Arthur, and I don't know the answer to that. I suspect it varies from person to person, but broadly, I think what, what most Republicans are saying is about Trump and about all, the, you know, all these other elected Republicans these guys hate the same guys I hate, right? You know, basically, you know, they're racist. They're white racists. The Republican Party has become just basically an entirely white racist party. This is what my rant yesterday. And that's enough for them. 
I really think that's enough for them. I, I don't think they care about the things that they've professed in the past. Arthur, I got to run, but thank you for the call. Thanks for listening to WCPT. Hey, special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer, Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick Hoyt, Geraldine Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Spross, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabbermocky, and Jay LeBlanc. Thank you all to all the great folks who helped make this program go. Thank you to our, uh, our affiliates, all, however you're getting this show. Thank you to you for listening, watching, however you may be interacting with us. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. we got to pull this republic back from the brink. Okay. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 